This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Regardless whoever wins the White House, we are facing serious geopolitical and economic challenges that could lead to the next great financial crisis. You need a recognized safe haven asset for your portfolio and IRA, and that asset is gold. Call Goldline and add physical gold to your portfolio or IRA at 800-913-GOLD. Goldline, been helping people diversify their portfolio with gold for over 55 years. Rated A-plus by the BDB. Read Goldline's important risk information, but do it now, because crazy times are coming. 800-913-GOLD. 800-913-GOLD. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. Hey, welcome to Vault. Jason? Yeah. Got everything? Yeah, I think so. Okay. All the Disney stuff? should be. Um, This is kind of my underground lair. Um, This is uh, the ultimate man cave, quite honestly. Uh, and the place that we keep all of the rare artifacts. Everything that you're gonna see is the real deal. Um, It's a different way of telling history, and quite honestly, it has very little to do with history. Today, um, I wanna talk to you about millionaires. I have met so many millionaires um, in my life, but I've noticed one thing. Most of them uh, aren't millionaires. Uh, they don't have any money. And um, about 90% of them never will actually make the money. They have parts of being a millionaire, but they don't have everything. And just a quick partial list um, that I, I think to have be a millionaire or to be really successful is first you have to think out of the box. This people can do. Oh, I got this great idea. Okay. Usually it's on step two that people fall apart. You're gonna have to sacrifice. You're gonna have to sacrifice Maybe um, going out on dates, going out and doing things that you want, sacrifice your hobbies, sacrifice your weekends. Quite honestly, in some cases, sacrifice your family time. Sacrifice, in worst case scenarios, your family time and your health because it doesn't just happen. It takes an awful lot of work. And most people, they say they want that life, but they don't really want that life. And the third thing that really has to happen never ever give up. I'm going to do another I am going to do another show based on there are times that you should give up, but that's a wholly different episode. So, millionaires. How did these people get there? What does it actually take? I want to show you two or three examples of people. I know I'm gonna do at least two, if we have time we'll do three. I call this episode, Walt and the Nazi. How did two people dramatically affect our lives and totally change the world? Remember, everything you're seeing tonight is the real deal. Now, everybody knows, or they think they know about Walt Disney. 
um, because they know um, this side of Walt. These are the, this is the first uh, Mickey Mouse uh, doll to go into um, production. This, everybody knows this character. Nobody really knows this guy. This is Oswald the Rabbit. Oswald the Rabbit was the brainchild of Walt Disney. He drew a lot of them uh, himself, and it was a huge hit. But this is before Walt Disney was Walt Disney. He was just a guy, and he was working for um, Universal. He decided to go out on his own, so he had real control of his storylines and characters and could make a little bit more money because he was basically eating shoe leather at the time. He left, and he thought he owned Oswald the Rabbit, but he didn't. Um, Oswald the Rabbit was property of Universal. Uh, and so it sat in a vault until recently, until they made a deal with ESPN and they swapped, I think it was uh, uh, Michaels, the sports guy, for the rights to Oswald the Rabbit. So you might be seeing some stuff from Oswald the Rabbit, but this is the side that everybody knows. That's not what I'm focusing on. I wanna focus based on these three things, think out of the box, sacrifice, and never give up. I wanna tell you about how we went to the moon because it's my contention that we went to the moon because of Walt Disney and because of the way he thought, the way he partnered with people and other people that never gave up. This actually, the real rocket is at the top. This is the rocket fuel. This is the uh, return capsule. And this actually breaks up into several pieces. And this inside of this is the lunar lander, the thing that actually landed on the moon. But actually, the first design for the rocket didn't look like this. It looked more like this, the space shuttle. Walt and the Nazi. Tonight's episode. Now, he had talked to his brother, Roy, who was running the Walt Disney Company, um, and said, look, I, I want to build a park. And Roy kept arguing with him, you're crazy. We don't have the money. We're losing on all of these movies that you're making. You're spending way too much on animation. He said, I know, I know. But this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to build this park. A billionaire friend of mine, a guy who was... Uh, the inventor of the McDonald's styrofoam uh, boxes, and uh, he made the first plastic knife and fork and the styrofoam plate. He told me one time, he said, um, you know what the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, billion dollars. And he said, um, no, it, the difference is a millionaire makes something and comes up with an idea that everybody needs once. A billionaire is somebody that comes up with an idea that everybody needs every day. What Walt Disney did, um, he'd clearly be a billionaire now, um, but beyond his realm, he affected almost everything. The, the real Disney that affects us started on a bench around 1950, just like this one. It was in Southern California, and it was in an amusement park. 
it was in an observatory, and they had little rides that the kids would play, and he would take his girls out, and they would sit, he would sit on the bench while they would ride these, as he described them later, these sticky rides. And the bench, he'd always have to wipe off, and he always, he always thought it was dirty and nasty, and no adult was ever happy there. But the kids loved it, and so he was a dutiful dad, and he would go and he would watch them, but he would sit on that bench and he would think, there has got to be a better way to do this, where everybody is having a good time. And that's when the wheels started to turn about Disneyland. This is a bench that was on Main Street, USA, opening day, 1955. And it remained there until 1999 when we bought it for our collection. Everything starts small, but when you are right on an idea, it begins to change the way all of us live. Jason, can you um, put these two over there with that? I want to show you an amazing piece of history. It's called the Disneyland Prospectus. When Walt was sitting on the bench, he thought to himself, um, I don't want to build a park. It's not going to be a park, and it's not going to be a theme park, even though that was his idea. Nobody knew what a theme park was. It's certainly not going to be an amusement park. One of my favorite quotes from Walt Disney was, it's not a park. It's a repository of values. Who thinks like that? Walt Disney. But his idea was so far out of the box that people couldn't understand it. And that's, that's the first thing. You want to be successful in life, really successful in life. Don't be afraid of thinking out of the box. And I mean, even denying, you're so far away, you're denying that there is a box. Something, I usually know when I'm right, when everybody's like, wait, I, I don't even understand that. What are you talking about? That's when I know we're in the space that we should be. Walt was like that. Almost everybody who is really successful is like that. People don't understand what you're even saying. He wanted to buy 160 acres, not a lot of uh, space. It was about 6,200 um, uh, an acre, and uh, he thought he could buy 160, and then he was going to make this repository of values. But when he started to describe it, um, nobody understood it. Nobody got it. Everybody said, you're in the movie business. In fact, he tried to convince friends to buy land around where he was going to build Disneyland, and they all said, this is going to be a massive, massive failure. At first, when he had the idea, he thought it would cost about $5 million. It was a lot more than that. Jason, do we have the um, Herb Ryman stuff? Is that over? Yeah. Is that over there? Herb Ryman was um, a designer... Um, and his chief um, design guy uh, and dreamer. There's some later stuff. Yeah, the Ryman is the, I think the Ryman may be the, um, the Space Mountain. Do you have that? Yeah. Um, this, is, this is much later, and I think it's Ryman. It's one of his artists. But when he would come up with these ideas, uh, or anybody at the parks would come up with an idea, they would say, um, Okay, just, just draw it up. Just put it on a piece of paper. So this is actually, and this is from Clem Hall, this is the first design of Space Mountain. It doesn't look really anything like 
this now, but that was the first idea. So what you're going to see is something that Walt said to Herb Ryman, his chief artist, and also his, um, his secretary, Dolores uh, uh, Vogt, I think her name was. And in fact, over there, over by Abraham Lincoln, hanging on the wall, that's the picture of Walt Disney that hung next to Dolores's desk for years and years. He called them up on a Friday and said, come in on Saturday and Sunday, bring a pillow and bring lots of paper, Dolores. He said, I, I have an idea. Now, he had talked to his brother, Roy, who was running the Walt Disney Company, um, and said, look, I, I want to build a park. And Roy kept arguing with him, you're crazy. We don't have the money. We're losing on all of these movies that you're making. You're spending way too much on animation. He said, I know, I know. But this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to build this park. He couldn't get anybody to buy into it. He went and he talked to all kinds of people. No one bought into it. That's when he called the two, his secretary and his main artist, and they did this. This is what is called the Disneyland Prospectus. This, we have copies of this. In fact, uh, my curator is upset at me that I'm even opening it for this, but I want you to see the real one. Um, the Disneyland Prospectus is from The Lost Weekend, where Walt sat with Dolores, his secretary, and said, Dolores, I want you to type out the ideas that I have, and Herb, I want you to, uh, I want you to draw it all out. So here you see Disneyland, where you leave today, visit the world of yesterday and tomorrow, prepared for Disneyland Inc. by Wed Enterprises. And it, it talks a little bit about what they're going to do, the Disneyland story. Disneyland will be based upon and dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. I don't know if they're still doing these things, but it talks about Adventureland, the world of tomorrow, Lilliputian land, uh, Recreation land, Frontier country, Fantasyland, the Mickey Mouse Club, Holiday land. I think there was a circus land in there as well. Um, Disneyland will be the essence of America as we know it. The nostalgia of the past with an exciting glimpse into the future. It will give meaning of the pleasure of children and pleasure to the experience of adults. So what did it look like? This is what he and Herb came up with that weekend. And it's hand-colored by Walt himself. By the way, you don't wear gloves with paper because you could rip it. This is Disneyland in Anaheim. And there's a couple of things. This is circus land that didn't make it. Uh, Tomorrowland doesn't really look like this. The castle is reversed. There's a big wall all the way around it. Um, this is Lilliputian land, or this is Lilliputian land. Um, and here in the center of Main Street, USA, is a big white church. And the train is running the wrong direction. But it's actually pretty close to the way Disneyland actually turned out. Now, the reason why I have this is because he couldn't get anybody to buy into it. And he went to the banks first, and he needed $5 million. And nobody wanted it. Everybody said, that's nuts. Why would I want to invest in that? Nobody's going to go. Um, if you want to make a movie, Mr. Disney, come back and talk to us. 
Couldn't get anybody to buy into it. So he had to go to think outside of the box. He looked at the three networks and everybody at the time, it's in the 50s, hated television. Hollywood hated television. And ever wonder why Hollywood didn't like Walt Disney at the time? It wasn't just because he didn't like the unions, it's also because he decided to break the backs of the studios with television. He went to ABC because ABC, out of, there were only three networks, only three things on TV to choose from. Think how hard ABC had to work to not be able to uh, get any show in the top 25 shows for the week. They were an abomination. He went and he said, I want to do a show for you. Well, ABC was thrilled to have Walt Disney. They said, what is it? He said, uh, it's uh, something called Disneyland. And in fact, it's based on this theme park. And it's, it's uh, and they said, an amusement park? He said, no, it's a theme park. And it's a repository of values. And it's going to have Frontierland. And it will tell the stories of Davy Crockett. And it will tell all these great stories of America and the Liberty Tree. And then we'll have Fantasyland. And it'll have Mickey Mouse and Fantasia. It'll have Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Then it has Tomorrowland, and Tomorrowland, we are going to tell the greatest stories of what's on the horizon. Well, they loved it. Wall was bluffing. He didn't know how to even do television. He wasn't ready to do television. And they said, okay, what it'll cost? He said, nothing. I'm going to make you a partner in Disneyland. They said, we don't want to be a partner in an amusement park. He said, it's not an amusement park. But they ended up giving him the $5 million. That's the seed money for Disneyland. But they didn't want anything to do with it. He used it as an advertising. Disneyland, the wonderful world of Disney, actually was an advertisement for the opening of the park, which aired on ABC one year later. He announced that he was going to break ground on Disneyland uh, in the fall of 1954. It opened the summer of 1955. I don't even think you could get the, the, the ecological studies done. You couldn't cut your first, or you couldn't even pick your first orange off the first orange tree in a year in America now. So I guess I should, millionaires, I should add one more step, live in a free country. But he got it all done in a year. But this isn't the only part of the story that I wanted to share with you because this isn't about Disneyland. This is about thinking out of the box and changing everything and never giving up. I have this because it belonged to the banker that he brought it to. And he brought this to a banker and, and uh, he said, wow, that's interesting, Mr. Disney, but I don't think we can give you any funding. Walt was frustrated, left the prospectus there with the banker. The banker brought it home, showed it to his kids. His kids were like, Dad, that's great. You're giving Mr. Disney the money. He's like, no, that's a crazy idea. What a stupid investment that was. That paid for itself, by the way, in 13 months. And by the way, it didn't end up being $5 million. It was $17 million, which in 1955 was about $151 million. Paid for itself in 13 months. Don't you wish you would have been an investor on that crazy idea? The world remembers this of Walt Disney.
But have you ever had Tang? If you're my age, you grew up on Tang. And it was the nastiest powdered orange drink that didn't taste like oranges at all. It was like like taking up like bad Flintstone chewables and grinding them up and then putting them in water and stirring them up and saying, here's a good fruit drink for you kids. Um, Tang was all the rage because Tang is what the astronauts drank. The microwave from the moon program. So many things that we have now from the moon program that came from Walt Disney. How? Easy. While Walt was doing this, he had another little side project. A side project with a guy in this picture. Uh-oh. Walt and the Nazi. Next. Man in Space first aired March 9th, 1955. So you have some concept of what has happened in Walt's year. He has built Disneyland starting, I think, in November of 54. He opens the park in July of 1955. And in March of that year, 42 million people, 42 million, 50% of all those who are watching television are watching the American Broadcasting Company, ABC Television. They had no ratings just before Walt, nothing in the top 25. Now they have the number one show in all of America. When I found this part of the Walt Disney story, I was both amazed and horrified because we have to do it just a separate show on the Nazis that came to America. Many of them came to uh, Texas, but this is Werner von Braun. Um, he is the guy who um, was the head of the V2 rocket program over in Germany. Those were the ones that were dropping, you know, out of the sky and bombing um, London. And they would fire, you know, and when you'd hear them stop, then they would just fall straight down. So. It would really be frightening if you heard the rocket stop. After the war, we went and we tried to get all of the scientists to come over and, you know, plea bargain. You work for us and we won't, you know, throw you away in jail and have you rot forever or hang you. Werner von Braun, um, he apparently tried to convince uh, Hitler that the, the, Good thing about rockets was not for bombs, but it was instead for space. And what strikes me is, I mean, look how similar. This is the 1980s, this is the 1950s. Werner von Braun said, we can make space planes and put them on rockets and, and shoot them in space. Well, Walt Disney hears about him. And because he's, he is fascinated with what's over the horizon. It was a time in the 1950s, very much like it is now in Silicon Valley, where everything was changing. The things that people who had come before World War II couldn't, would never consider that man could go to space, man could walk on the moon. But now, new inventions, new horizons were opening up. 
And that's why Walt wanted to have the um, Tomorrowland in Disney World or Disneyland. Um, so you could see some of these exciting inventions. He studies a little bit about Martin von Braun and he decides, I'm going to try to call him up and see if I can spend some time with him and talk to him and learn everything about his idea of putting man in space. And so they spent some time together and they really liked him. And Walt said, I'm busy building Disneyland now. I need the project manager on this. I need somebody to make a television show for me for Tomorrowland uh, that will air on ABC and it needs to be with Ver Werner von Braun. Now, if you hear Werner von Braun, he's like, und dann wir take the rocket ship and I mean, he's re I mean, he's full-fledged Nazi, you know, six, seven years after the Second World War. And so Walt decides he's going to um, uh, assign Ward Kimball to this project. And Ward Kimball is this little mousy guy, about this tall, and he had, um, he had big, huge glasses. And here he's standing next to the Nazi, and he's the guy who developed, you know, the, the seven dwarfs. That's his claim to fame. Uh, and <laughs> so Walt's like, hey, Ward, meet the Nazi. Nazi, Ward. And uh, he says, Ward, I need you to make this into a riveting hour special, and we're going to call it Man in Space. Again, the idea is think so far out of the box and sacrifice and do things that nobody else is willing to do. Walt is currently spending all of his money on Walt Disney, uh, on Disneyland. He's mortgaged his house. He's put every dime into it. Everyone says it won't work. His wife said, you're going to build this. You're going to lose all your money. Then you're going to die, and I got nothing. He rolled the dice because he believed in it. And then he went out on another ledge, television, which didn't make him popular with all of the people that could help him build things. And then he went out on another limb. Hey, Ward, meet the Nazi. We're going to put him on in the family hour. They do Man in Space. Man in Space first aired March 9th, 1955. So you have some concept of what has happened in Walt's year. He has built Disneyland starting, I think, in November of 54. He opens the park in July of 1955. And in March of that year, 42 million people, 42 million, 50% of all those who are watching television are watching the American Broadcasting Company, ABC Television. They had no ratings just before Walt, nothing in the top 25. Now they have the number one show in all of America. And he's putting the Nazi on with Man in Space. It was such a huge success that it also became our first rerun. Reruns weren't really known at that time. Desi Arnaz, which will be another episode, is the guy who came up with the rerun. Everybody would shoot things and then it would just go away. This was so awesome and, and captured the spirit and the imagination of the American people so much that the story goes that Eisenhower called Walt up after the first episode and said, Walt, excuse my language, you son of a, 
You've done it. Walt said, you've done what? He said, I've been trying to convince the guys in the Pentagon that we should go to space. You've done one better. You just convinced the American people we can go to space. Send me the film. A month after it originally aired, with 50% of televisions on it, it was so popular, ABC aired it again, 30 days later. A year after that, they aired it in movie theaters. This is the reason, I believe, we actually went to space. This is the reason. It was Walt Disney seeing the potential, thinking way out of the box, um, sacrificing everything, and rolling it all up into something where he never gave up and said, let's go to the moon. Now, this isn't the actual head. Uh, this is a Disney head, and it was the one that was on the original audio animatronics um, Abraham Lincoln show at the World's Fair um, in New York. He wanted to make people. Some people thought this was blasphemous at the time. Uh, some people thought that it would diminish Lincoln. Nobody had ever seen an actual robot before. I want to take you back to a completely different story that Walt is already dead. I want to take you inside of this in a minute. But I want to show you how this man, Walt Disney, thought. A side project was man in space. At the same time, he was building that. But again, he was so far ahead of his time, he did something else. Walt's success at Disneyland um, gave him a green light to dream really big, really big. Walt had, he didn't know this, but by 1960, he only had a few years left. Um, and he would be dead before Christmas, 1966. He said at the time, in the next 15 years, I will eclipse everything that I have already done. That was a lot. I contend he thought so far out of the box and so far ahead that we just stopped picking his ideas and his bones for fresh new horizons. This is quite an amazing piece. This, believe it or not, uh, the head was a year in the making. Now, this isn't the actual head. Uh, this is a Disney head, and it was the one that was on the original audio animatronics um, Abraham Lincoln show at the World's Fair. Um, in New York. He wanted to make people. Some people thought this was blasphemous at the time. Uh, some people thought that it would diminish Lincoln. Nobody had ever seen an actual robot before. His ambition was so large that he said, I want to make a life-size, lifelike man. They thought he had a God complex at the time but it was awe-inspiring. However, it didn't open on time because they couldn't get it to work. The people were, his kids said, they were under the stage um, and they were getting ready to have it open and it failed yet again and 
as Walt held a press conference and said, we won't open until it's right, they said that the two kids wept um, because they knew how much it meant to their dad and he just couldn't get it to run right. As they kept taking the head off, they had to still set the lights and everything else, so they had to make a, another replica of his head. And so they made this head for the first audio-animatronic Abraham Lincoln, uh, the first time a robot was ever really used. He was doing these things because he had even a bigger vision. And this is the headlines from the Orlando Sentinel. Florida's Disney World unveiled, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. He tried to keep this secret for a long, long time, uh, but the word finally came out. And you'll see, it's not a picture of the Magic Kingdom at all, because that's not what Walt Disney was doing. Remember, he was a guy that thought he could make a better tomorrow. But he used the World's Fair as a, put this here, we'll put it back in the vault here in a minute. He used um, the World's Fair to develop something else. And something in doing my research on Walt Disney, I found was not even his idea. Remember, think out of the box, sacrifice, and never give up. This is an artsy fartsy book um, that was published uh, every month. Um, and it would have different stories uh, in it. And this one is Out of a Fair, a City. And it was about the New York World's Fair. And the idea was that during the fair, it would have all of these booths and this is what it would look like. But after the fair, it would change into an actual city. And they would use this city and it would be its suburb. I was struck by this because Walt Disney, this fair he was instrumental in. In fact, if you look at what I just showed you of the, uh, of the World's Fair and you compare it to this, it's almost exactly the same. So where did this idea come from? Was it Walt's? I was reading a, um, a book. Of this. It's a book without even a picture on the cover. Oh my gosh. It, it's like for the super nerdy people that really love Walt Disney and you want to really get into the, uh, all the technical aspects of him. And I found a little line with a, with a footnote about a book that he carried around in his pocket for the last year of his life and said that he was never without this book. Found out what the book was, asked my staff if they could get a copy of it. Well, it took them about a year, but they came with the uh, book. Really, really very rare. The book Walt had in his pocket for a year. Tomorrow, A, uh, a Peaceful Path to Real Reform by E. Howard. This is a book, this is the first book on urban development. It was printed right around the turn of the century, right around 1900. But if you go through this book, you will see that it has little pictures of the city of tomorrow. And if you look at the city of tomorrow, it looks awfully darn familiar. Epcot was not an idea that Walt had. This was an idea that was a hundred years old. He just had the courage to make it. Now, it was never finished by Walt, 
because Walt died. And when he died, he took all of the plans with him. They had scale models, they had everything ready to go, but nobody had the courage to pull the trigger on such an outrageous project as a total redesign of a city and a redesign of the way we live. Most people don't know that uh, it was never meant to be an amusement park. Um, it was actually to help build a better world as he saw it. In fact, when they redesigned Pittsburgh, when they redesigned Baltimore, and they did the Inner Harbor in Baltimore, it was the Walt Disney Company based on these things that Baltimore went to and said, can you help us design a better city? That's why Epcot is almost its own state. It's almost a state within a state. At the time, it had its right for its own nuclear power plant. It has a mayor, it has its own trash, it has its own fire department, police department, it has everything on its own because it was supposed to be a prototype city of tomorrow. Walt never realized that, but I want to bring you back to space because he convinces us that we can go to space and then somebody else, another group of explorers, actually take us there. But in doing my homework on this, I found a couple of things that I thought were fascinating. And I want to show you the actual lunar landing map that was used on Apollo 12. So I want to take you back to the Apollo rocket. Von Braun's brainchild, with the help of Walt Disney selling it to the American people, John F. Kennedy decides that he's going to give the speech that will send a man to the moon and return him home safely by the end of the decade. It was a crazy idea. This whole thing lifted off. This was on the top. Uh, when it got to the moon, basically only this area was left along with this at the top. That's when our two of the three astronauts climbed into this and this jettisoned off to go land at the moon. It was extraordinarily difficult. At the time they were doing it, the president was having a speech written on what he was gonna to say to the American people should they die um, trying to get to the moon, or if they couldn't get this ship back off the moon and rejoin with the capsule. But I want to take you in just for a second into this capsule and show you what they used and what they must have been thinking and smelling. I can't imagine what it would have been like to go to the moon. Imagine that. Um, Nobody had ever walked on it before. They had no idea what the surface was going to be like. Was it going to be hard? Was it going to be soft? This is not the lunar lander. Um, but the lunar lander, you've seen it looks like it's made out of tinfoil because it was made on a Hollywood movie set, you know. Um, and if you see him, um, when Armstrong uh, comes off, he says, one small step for man, and then he leaps off. One giant leap for mankind. He was not supposed to have to leap off. There's a ladder there, but it doesn't go far enough. 
That's because we didn't have any idea of two things. One, what a great pilot Armstrong was, and two, what the surface was going to be like. They thought it would be a lot harder than it was. So the legs to the lunar lander, again, not this, they were supposed to collapse. And when he hit it, it was supposed to collapse. He had 20 seconds left of fuel. That was it. He had to get it down, cut it, and then drop. He was such a good pilot and found just the right place that it didn't collapse the legs. And, uh, and then he, uh, he jumped out, but he didn't know what he was jumping into at all. Again, we didn't know. This is interesting to me because there was a third astronaut. We know the two that came down and landed on the moon and walked on the moon, but one of them wasn't allowed to go to the moon. He had to stay in that capsule and just keep circling the moon while these guys went out, played around a golf or two, had some breakfast, took a nap, and then shot back up and tried to get back to the capsule. What he did, Collins, in the capsule, one of the things he did was take these pictures. This is a picture close up of the moon, and as you can see, it's taken in long strips, individual pictures, as it continued to circle the moon. I don't know which the X's and which are the O's. I don't know if the X's are like, no, definitely don't land here, or the O's are like, oh crap, I, I don't know, but one of them I assume is don't land here, and the other one is like, I don't know, give it a whirl. The thing that's amazing to me is we had never landed here. We had no idea. Some of the first satellites were up in space and around the moon uh, like eight years before. This was all new territory. It took bravery and courage to just land on the moon. As I was getting ready to talk to you about some of this, I found an interesting fact that I had never even thought of. See if you've thought of it. You ever wondered what the moon smells like? I never even thought of that. And perhaps it's because uh, you're in a helmet, so you never think of it. When the guys joined back with the capsule, they took their helmets off. And that was the first time that they could smell the moon because they were covered in lunar dust. They said that it smelled like a combination of ashes and gunpowder. I just wanted to put them together because I kind of wondered what that smelled like. That stinks on ice. It's not a place you'd like to go visit. Charting the unknown. I want to change one thing on this because I don't think this is at all about being a millionaire. You got to think out of the box, sacrifice, never give up. But the most important thing, I think, none of these guys did it for the money. They did it because they believed 
they could. I meet so many people that have the potential of being a millionaire because they have something in them that is just fantastic. But most of them will give up long before they make it. Most of them aren't willing to truly sacrifice, which is not a bad thing. It's easy to think out of the box, but it's really hard to believe that you are the one. We'll put everything back into its rightful place in the vault, and we'll see you next time. Regardless whoever wins the White House, we are facing serious geopolitical and economic challenges that could lead to the next great financial crisis. You need a recognized safe haven asset for your portfolio and IRA, and that asset is gold. Call Goldline and add physical gold to your portfolio or IRA at 800-913-GOLD. Goldline, been helping people diversify their portfolio with gold for over 55 years. Rated A-plus by the BDP. Read Goldline's important risk information, but do it now, because crazy times are coming. 800-913-GOLD. 800-913-GOLD.